Well, good morning, Be Free. Welcome. Awesome. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here, and we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. Uh, Linda made fun of me this morning because we know. I say that every week. We know that by now. So we're thankful to be that Christ-centered family, thankful that we can be together worshiping. And it is Jesus that brings us together and unites us. So today, as we look at the Word of God, we are going to find ourselves, once again, focusing uh, on Jesus Christ. It is what makes us who we are. So we are in the last four verses of chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. 27 through 30. Just a little passage today, but what this is going to do is it's going to give us a chance to take one more look at the church in Antioch, this local church in the city of Antioch. So as you go ahead and opening, as you are opening up your Bibles there, I just want to reiterate something that was said before. Uh, home groups this year are going into a book uh, called Gentle and Lowly, um, and we've been really blessed by a, um, the publisher of this book, actually. They were sending out boxes of books to any church that would, would use it, and it was already a book that I was thinking, we need this book uh, as a church. It has impacted me deeply. Um, and so, thankfully, we have a free book for everybody uh, who's going to be a part of the home group, a home group this year. Over here on the table, we've got a couple stacks of them. So, by the end of today, grab one on your way out. Uh, don't leave without getting one of those. We'll have them over the next couple weeks as we get the home group year started. So, even if you're just thinking about home groups, grab one. Um, this is a book I want on your bedside table because it's one that will stay on mine for quite a while. All right. What have we seen about the church of Antioch so far? Just in the chapter 11, really just the second half of chapter 11, what have we seen about Antioch? We've seen four things, four things that we should admire and that we should be seeking to imitate. The first is that it is a multi-ethnic church, a diverse people. Last week we saw that it is a multiplying and a maturing church. In other words, that it is a growing people, deeper and wider. And today we're going to see that it is a merciful church, caring and compassionate people, multi-ethnic, multiplying, maturing, and merciful. And what we get in these four verses is a very short and actually a pretty simple story. I'm about to read these four verses, and really, at first time reading through these verses, you're going to understand the gist of what's going on here. You might have a couple questions, and we'll hit those. But really, the story is pretty simple as far as what they did, <laughs> what the church in Antioch did. What's more complicated about this verse, these verses is why they did it. What causes this church to do what they did? <laughs> what motivates them to do this? What's the, what's the cause of their mercy? And then by the end of the day, we're going to take that last logical step just to ask ourselves this question, what can we learn from their faithful example? In other words, what does it look like for us to imitate their faithful example? So let me read these four verses, listen closely, and as we get to the end, I will pray, and then we will be walking through. Here we are. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the, the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, 
sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. It's pretty simple. I'm excited to dive into this together. Let's pray for a moment, and then we'll do just that. Heavenly Father, as always, as, getting, as I was getting into this passage again this week, I was just amazed at exactly how every single verse is deeper than I initially think it is. These four verses are no exception. Father, today, give us the eyes to see. May your Holy Spirit illuminate our eyes to see the depths of this passage. Show us what it looks like for us to imitate it. Help us remember that the gospel does not culminate with our salvation, but permeates throughout in our entire lives. And Lord, this passage here, it reminds us of that. What you did on the cross shapes how we live today. And this is a perfect example. And so, Father, as we come to your word, we pray that we would come to it as it truly is, as the word of God, that we allow your word to set the agenda here that we allow your word to trump any other truth or wisdom or ideas that we might have, that we would let you have your say and that allow your word to be the final say on all topics. So give me wisdom and clarity as I speak from your word, Lord, and I pray that you would give us humility as we receive these words and seek to live them out in our lives. God, we are dependent upon you and we are blessed to be your people. So we pray this, God, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, first two verses. Join me, verse 27 and 28. I'll read them. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. In parentheses, this took place in the days of Claudius. All right, so this, the stage of this short, short story is getting set in these first two Verses. We're looking and we hear the story about a group of prophets. That's prophets with an S, plural prophets here in this passage. These are prophets apparently that live in Jerusalem, 310 miles south of Antioch, and they travel down, it says, that's north but downhill, from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, one of this group of prophets was a guy named Agabus. We meet him here in chapter 11. We're also going to meet him again 10 chapters later in chapter 21 of the book of Acts. And he comes to the church in Antioch, and he says that there would be, that's future tense, that there would be a great famine over all the world. And when they say all the world, what they likely mean is the entire Roman world. He's not talking about the entire globe, but the entire known world. That's probably what he's referring to here. Might sound like a nitpicking thing to know, but hold on to that information. The last thing we have to see here is that the message is not from him. Where does this message come from, from this passage? It was foretold by the Spirit. Agabus comes speaking the future. It's not his truth. He comes speaking somebody else's truth. He comes speaking the truth of God. The Spirit is what's allowing him to tell this future. The Spirit is speaking through him. And it's at this point, this is really cool, Luke pipes up. He's acting as the narrator here. Uh, in the parentheses, when it says, this took place in the day of Claudius, that's Luke inserting his own voice saying, hey, by the way, this prophecy did happen. It happened a little bit later. It happened in the year AD 41 to 54, somewhere in there, because that's, that's when we know Agabus, sorry, not Agabus, Claudius ruled over Rome. So sometime in those years after this, this actually happened. And so it's for me, I'm, I'm coming to this passage, and I have a question. 
Maybe you do as well. And maybe this is a bit of a tangent. I'm going to go on it anyway. Please join me. What's with prophets? I mean, because I'm looking at the book of Acts, and we're 11 chapters into the book of Acts, and we've, if you go through the book of Acts, you'll find the word prophet or prophets from time to time, but every single time of the 16 times that word has shown up in the book of Acts so far, every single time it's looking back to the Old Testament. It's talking about what the prophets said or what the prophets did or the fact that the Jews didn't listen to the prophets. It's always looking backwards, but here for the first time, In this book, all of a sudden, he's talking present tense. Where are these prophets coming from? And now as we look on in the book of Acts, we're going to see more prophets as we go forward. But I want to ask ourselves this question. Is this passage trying to teach us something about the place of prophets and prophecy uh, in the early church? And is this passage trying to tell us, teach us something about the role of prophets and prophecy even in the church today? This is a question we're going to hit continually and increasingly as we go through the book of Acts. And the question is this. The things that we read in this book, are they telling us what we should do? Or are they just telling us what they did? Is it helping us understand what we ought to do today as the church? Or is it just looking backwards and saying, no, well, this is just what they did. Or this is just what happened. I taught you two words quite a while ago, long, long time ago now. Two words, we're going to pull them out of the mothballs for a second. The two words are prescriptive and descriptive. The question is, does this passage prescribe what we should do? Or does it just describe what they did? And this might sound like a tangent, but this is really important for us to learn, especially as we go through a book like Acts, a book that we always look back to and think, well, they did it that way. Should we do it that way too? And whenever we come to passages like that that make us ask that question, we should really run this passage through a filter of three questions. Let me tell you those three questions. I'll put them up here on the screen. The three questions that we run every uh, question like this through is this. Is the author really trying to teach on this topic? Okay, so in this example, is Luke really trying to teach about prophecy here? Is that his point? Is that what he's getting at? Second question, do you see that this topic anywhere else in the story? Does the topic of prophecy show up anywhere else in the book of Acts? Is it a major theme in the book? Number three, do any other parts of the Bible speak more clearly about this topic? So, for example, we might see it in a story, but then we have to ask, well, actually... Maybe Paul or James or Peter actually write commands about this thing in one of their letters. We have to think bigger picture here. And as I look at this passage, Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, and I see the presence of these prophets, this is what I can tell Luke is trying to say. He's trying to tell me, at least, that prophets existed. If the Word of God is the Word of God and the Word of God can't have errors, at least we know prophets were there and they're going to be throughout the book of Acts. We also know that the Holy Spirit was actually telling the future through Agabus. That actually was happening. The Word of God says it was happening and finally, his prediction did come true sometime between 40 and 54 AD. But it seems to me that Luke is simply telling those facts and then he kind of just drops it and moves on. It seems to me like Luke's aim here is not to address the place of prophecy in the church. He's not denying it. He's acknowledging it's there. 
But it seems that he's not trying to teach on that, but rather just tell the story of what the church in Antioch does in response to this prophecy. When we run this passage through that filter, it doesn't give us a final answer. What does the church believe? What should the church believe about prophecy? It doesn't tell us the answer. Because frankly, that's not what Luke is trying to do here. And like I said in my prayer before, we have to let the Bible set the agenda for what the Bible teaches. The Bible's not trying to teach us about the existence of prophecy in the early church. Well, maybe we'll have to look somewhere else. (laughs) But what we know from this passage is Luke is simply setting the scene. He's setting the scene. There were prophets there. (laughs) They made a prediction. So now we have to see, what does the church do? In light of the knowledge that a famine was coming, what does the church do? Let's jump back in. Join me in verse 29 through 30. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So they know this famine's coming. What do they do? A famine is coming to the land. What do they do? They come together and they decide willingly, individually, wisely, and sacrificially to give to the church in Jerusalem. Those are the four words I see here. I see that they do so willingly, individually, wisely, and sacrificially. Let me show you how I get those two words. First, we see that they do so willingly. Because it says here that they determined to respond like this. Nobody was twisting their arms. They made the decision. The disciples there in Antioch made this decision. They gave willingly. Secondly, they gave individually. What that means is that the the aid that was being sent to Jerusalem, it didn't come out of the church coffers. It wasn't the tithe that was then compiled and sent. This was each person, every one, it says here, individually deciding what to give. And that's the next thing we see, that they did so wisely. It says here they did so according to his ability. In other words, each person, as the Lord led them, they took inventory of their financial situation, decided what they were able to give, and then gave. But the word that I want to focus on most here about their giving is that last word, sacrificially. They gave wisely, individually, willingly, and sacrificially. And the reason why I can say that they gave sacrificially is by remembering one fact about the prophecy. I wonder if you realized it. I wonder if you caught it as I read it. Let me read verse 28 again. And think to yourself, what about their giving is so incredibly sacrificial? Here it is, verse 28. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. What's so remarkable about their giving? It's that the famine was coming for them. Agabus did not say a famine is coming to Judea. Send them money and help. A famine is coming to the world. A famine is coming to Antioch and Judea. This famine is coming for you. This is a warning that he is giving them. It's a warning that this famine is coming to you and is coming to everyone else. How does that change the way that you see their generosity here? Doesn't that transform the way you see the, the, their, their mercy and their compassion? Doesn't that just make it so much more remarkable? 
Because Antioch, the, the relief that they're sending, they're not saying, hey, look, Christians in Judea, I know you're going to struggle, and so let us send help. This is Antioch saying, we are all going to struggle. Let's do this together. This isn't a picture of a wise man giving a loaf of bread to a poor man, or sorry, a rich man giving a loaf of bread to a poor man. This is an example of a poor man tearing his loaf of bread in half and saying, here, you have half as well. It's a different kind of situation. It's a situation in which one church is not willing to let another church go through this alone. It's one thing to give from a place of excess. It's another thing entirely to give from a place of need and a place of uncertainty. This is costly generosity. This is costly mercy. Costly, sacrificial love. And in fact, is there any other kind? (laughs) Is there any kind of mercy that doesn't actually cost us something? It costs them their money. It costs them their security. So the question I want to ask now, the harder question, it's easy to see what they did here. What's hard to see is why they did it. Why were they so merciful? Why were they willing to sacrifice their money, even their security, in the light of a coming famine to make sure this church in Judea, the Christians, the believers in Judea, would be able to survive this this famine? The natural response for them would be to button down the hatches, to save, to make sure that they would have what they need to make it through. But rather what they do is they say that we are not able, we are not willing to let our Judean brothers do this alone. Let's give what we can. Why? And before we can answer the question of why they are willing to give so generously, I think we need to stop and ask ourselves or investigate for ourselves a little bit about the God that they serve. Let's stop and remember the God who they serve, the God who loved them. Let's stop and think for a minute about who that God is and what that God does. And one of my favorite passages of the entire Bible is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. And and this is a passage where uh, God, uh, or Moses, asks God to reveal himself to him. And so God tells Moses that he is going to go before him and proclaim the name of the Lord. Now, that's, an ex- that's, a, that's a confusing expression. Because when we say the word name, usually what we mean is what somebody is called. What, what's that person's name? The answer is what their title is. His name is Ben. His name is Dale. Her name is Olivia. Uh, that's what a name is. But we also know that a name is more than just a title. If somebody has a good name in, a, in the community, that doesn't mean that people like his title. That means that people like who he is. <laughs> it means that he is a person of honor, a person of respect. A good name means that not just what he's called, but who he is. And so when we talk about the name of the Lord here in Exodus chapter 34, we're not talking about his title. We're not talking about what we should refer to him as. We're talking about who he is. And so God comes before Moses... And he tells Moses who he is. And this is how God describes himself. Read this with me. Exodus 34. God says that he is the Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What is the first word God uses to describe himself? He's merciful. When God tells Moses who he is, the first word that he jumps to after the Lord is that he is merciful. That's who he is. But are we really surprised by that? The way that we know who God is isn't only by who he says he is. We also know who God is based upon who he has shown himself to be. And as we look through the pages of Scripture, what we see is that mercy is one of the best words we could think about to describe who He is and what He does. All the way from the very beginning, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They ate of their fruit. They rebelled against the Lord. And it was God's mercy that caused Him to delay the punishment He promised. A little bit later, the people of Egypt, uh, Israel were in Egypt and they were in slavery. God looked upon them with compassion and it was in His mercy that He caused a deliverer to be sent to them, a man named Moses to set them free. This people that He redeemed out of slavery, He led into, into the promised land and year after year, century after century, the people of Israel rebelled against Him, uh, rebelled against Him as the Lord and it was God's mercy that caused Him to hold back the hand of judgment for centuries, being patient with them, long-suffering with them, giving them chance after chance after chance, even deliverer after deliverer after deliverer, waiting for them. That's God's mercy. Not only that, but as Israel continued to rebel against the Lord, it was God's mercy that caused him to send prophet after prophet after prophet to beg these rebellious people to repent, to turn back to the Lord, to follow his law, to be faithful to his covenant. And finally, it was the mercy of God that caused him to send his son. To send his son to die on the cross for the sins of the people of Israel and the entire world. It was his mercy that caused that. That's the cliff notes. If you want the full version, you have to read the whole story. Our God is a God of mercy, and it's one of the clearest things we can tell about him from his book. And one of my favorite passages on this, Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6. Sorry, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He is rich in mercy. He doesn't have just enough. He is overflowing with mercy. And in relationship with him, that mercy falls upon us. And his mercy for us is fueled, according to this passage, by his love for us. He lavishes mercy on the people he loves because he is so stinking rich in it. That's the God the people of Antioch serve. Uh, he, he saved them. He adopted them even at the cost of his own son. And it was by his mercy that they were made alive together with Christ, as it says in Ephesians 2. So does it not follow that those who have been shown mercy would be shaped by mercy? Is it not just logical that the mercy that has been richly lavished upon them would overflow the brim of their hearts and splatter the sneakers of anyone nearby? Does it not just make sense that the God, the people of God, who have been shown this amazing, breathtaking, life-transforming, eternity-transforming mercy, 
would turn around and show the same kind of costly mercy to others. I want to tell you, be free. It's not just logical. It's commanded in the Word of God that this should happen. Not just logical. Not only is this the natural response of people who have been shown mercy, but it's also the call from Jesus and from his apostles. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. He says this, If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It's clear enough, but he continues, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Jesus is saying to his disciples, guys, you got to lay down your lives. you got to sacrifice yourselves. you got to care for other people's good more than you care for your own good. Other people's honor more than you care for your own honor. Just as I did for you, you do for others. Imitate me. Be like me. It's not just there. Let's read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. This is the Apostle Paul, and this is what he says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Sorry, let me say it again. As Christ loved us, meaning in the same way Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, sacrifice to God. Imitate God. Imitate Jesus Christ. Imitate the love that led him to give up himself by leading you to give up yourself. And the clearest passage, my, maybe my favorite passage of this in the entire Bible comes from Philippians 2, chapters 3 through 5, because you cannot say it clearer than this. This is the Apostle Paul again. I'll read it for you. This is what it says. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, keywords. In Christ Jesus, who, and then he explains it, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Guys, he... Paul is holding up Jesus to the church in Philippi. He's holding up Jesus and he's saying, look at him. Look at what he did. And what did he do? Well, he emptied himself for you. Do you see how he humbled himself for you? Do you see how he even humbled himself to the point of death that he died for you? He says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Count others more significant than yourselves. Like he did this for you, do it for others. Imitate him. That's where mercy comes from. Mercy flows out of the people of God because we are people who have been shown mercy. It's the natural, logical response of people who have been shaped by the mercy of God and it is the command from the mouth of our Lord. That means master. That's what he calls us to. Thankfully, it's not something he calls us to do alone. And thankfully, it's not something that he calls us to do in a one-way direction. He calls us into a community empowered by the Holy Spirit where we are called to show this mutual mercy and self-sacrificial love to one another. The beauty of the body of Christ, and we could make a long list about the beauty of the body of Christ, about the church, but one of the things 
that should be so beautiful about the body of Christ is that we are a group of people who should care about the interests of one another more than ourselves. We should be a community of people whose love for one another causes us to pour out for the good of one another even more than ourselves. Uh, guys, I'm, I'm even thinking about, I had a conversation with somebody recently about why come to church? And why come to church? Well, the answer is we come to church to worship. Absolutely. The answer is we come to church to grow. Absolutely. But the other reason we come to church is because we need you here. <laughs> I need relationship with you if I'm going to grow. You need a relationship with me if you're going to grow. Come to church because we as one family can gather together for the purpose of mutual pouring, mutual growth, mutual service, mutual worship. That's just one example. The people of God gathered together to be a loving, merciful, mutually sacrificial community. And that's what the church in Antioch did. They were imitating God in the way that they were interacting with the church in Judea because they didn't forget something that we can tend to forget in the church today. And that is that the word church doesn't only mean a local community of God's people, it means the global community of God's people. When the brothers in Afghanistan are hurting, we pray for them. If there's anything we can do to help those people, we give to that. If our brothers in North Korea are hurting, we pray for them. We do whatever we can to help them. Though we cannot practically have continued interaction with the universal body of Christ all the time, this is the family we have been called into. And we have the honor of privilege of being this local community, a small incarnation of that universal body of Christ. The church in Antioch shows us a picture of what that looks like, being willing to sacrifice our good for the good of the greater family. Unwilling to overlook the suffering of their brother, but loving one another with a love that leads to sacrificial mercy. So what about us? What does this mean for us at at Be Free? What, What can we learn from their faithful example? What does it look like for us to imitate it? Because the point is pretty clear. We, we live lives shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the hard thing is answering the question, how do we actually put skin on this? We admire them, we imitate their example, but what does it look like for us to imitate them as they imitate Christ? Well, my answer and my encouragement for us today, something that we're going to be thinking about and praying about for a few minutes here, is that we are called to let the unity we share in Christ cause us to care more for the good of the others than we care for ourselves. Because of the unity we share in Christ, we weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We, we sacrifice so the other may flourish. We give so that the others can gain. We count others more significant than ourselves as Christ modeled in his sacrificial humi- humility. But as we put skin on the bones here, I want to think about a couple examples uh, that we today, even this week, uh, can, can, can live out as we try to imitate this type of mercy, the mercy that we have been shown, this sacrificial mercy. And the first thing that comes to mind is, is this. <laughs> the church in Antioch is a church who hears about the needs of another local church just a little bit south of them who needs their help. The church in Judea. And last week, 
we had somebody come to our church and we learned about a church just a little bit south of us who needs our help. <laughs> I'm talking about Summersworth. Man, I've been walking with alongside um, Tim for the last year and a half, hearing from him every other week about this journey as he, they have sought a place for their church to gather. Uh, they gathered as long as they could until uh, COVID uh, shut them down. They weren't shut down because of COVID restrictions. They were shut down because their landlord uh, went bankrupt because of COVID. And so they're looking for a place to land. They're looking for a place to worship. And for a year and a half plus now, they've been unable to meet together as a body, as, like we can. And they found a place finally. And we praise God for that. But they need to do some renovations on this building to get into that place so that they can come together as a church family in one location once again. Can we help make that happen? That's, that's, my, that's one way that we can sacrificially serve the body of Christ uh, remarkably similarly, similarly to the way the church in Antioch does. Will you willingly, individually, wisely, but also sacrificially give to help the church of Antioch? No, nope, summer's worth. <laughs> Meet once again. Uh, down in Summersworth. They're doing good work down there. God is using them. Um, if so, over here on the table, there's a little card that tells you everything you need to know about how to give. So um, grab that on your way out. When we talk about sacrificial mercy, I'm not only talking about financial giving. I'm not only talking about the giving of your resources of any sort. I'm, I'm also talking about the sacrificial giving of things like time. The sacrificial giving of things like your, your energy. And for us in our church, I've, I'm so encouraged by our church for this reason. We have uh, about two-thirds of the people in our church who are serving in some ministry in our church. Two-thirds of the people who come here and worship together with us are signed up on one of these ministry serving teams. And I just want to say before anything else, thank you so much. If you didn't help, well, no, we know what it's like when people can't help. That's what we saw during COVID, and it didn't go well. Uh, I was trying to do way more than I could possibly do. Now that we can have our ministry teams back together, it is so wonderful to have the body of Christ serving back together again. So thank you for the mercy and the generosity that you guys show to our church family. But I want to say this. Again, I want to insert that word wisely. Wisely, consider, what are you able to give for the body of Christ? What does it look like you for, to wisely but also sacrificially serve this family? If, if you're not currently serving in some capacity, I want to encourage you to be prayerful and ask yourself the question, what can I give up for the good of the body of Christ at Be Free in Alton? And if you are serving somewhere and you have the capacity to help in some other way, I beg you, pray that same prayer. What does it look like for me? to serve as a part of this family. I'll share with you a couple, a couple needs right now that we have as a church, and I don't want this to turn into an infomercial, but this is truly where we're at as a church. It seems like as I look around the church, many of the different ministries of our church have a lot of people serving in them, but we're so, so close <laughs> to having enough uh, where we can actually have a healthy rotation and we don't have to have uh, different people get pulled in left and right. The first one that comes to mind is as every church ever, kids' ministry. <laughs> I'm looking at our nursery in, in, in Adventureland, and for our nursery, we are just a couple people away of being able to have a healthy rotation of once every month and a half. If you're a woman in our church and you're able to give up one church, one, uh, church service every month and a half so that you can 
spend time with these kids, love these kids, allow their parents to worship, would you prayerfully consider sacrificing in that way? I use the word sacrifice intentionally. It is giving up your time. But it is for the good of the other. That's what Christ models for us. That's what Antioch models for us. Let's imitate that. One week, one week every month and a half or so. Same thing with Adventureland. We've got a pretty good healthy rotation of teachers in Adventureland, but it's hard for the teachers to teach if they're the only adults in the room. Men or women, would you be willing to give up one Sunday every month and a half to just be back there and help the kids sit, help the kids listen and pay attention? Would you be willing to give up one week every month and a half so that these kids, the kids of our church, could be better discipled here on a Sunday morning. Our kids are not the church of the future. They are the church of today. Are we discipling them? Third, the set-up tear-down team. This is, uh, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. I come here every morning, every Sunday early to help things get set up, but you know what? I'm not always the first person here. In fact, I'm usually not. <laughs> it's because we have a faithful team of people who help make this happen. Get the chairs down, get everything spaced the way it's supposed to, the food set up, all of that. And we have a pretty healthy rotation of that as well. But would you be willing to come early every month and a half? It's about that same spacing as well. So that we can come together here and be ready to worship. Serve one another sacrificially in that way. But the last one I want to bring before you is one that has been so incredibly heavy on my heart recently. Uh, and it's, it's one that is a desperate need uh, in our church. We have about between 13 to 15 youth in our church. And for years, we've had leaders faithfully, sacrificially serving us in the youth ministry. Michael and Rebecca, we want to say a huge, we will say thank you to them in a couple weeks here, just for all the service, all the time they've given to discipling the kids in our church. We love, we love, we love these kids. We want to see them grow. We want to see them discipled. I can give my own personal testimony in, in like a 30 second period of time. If somebody didn't come alongside me when I was in seventh grade and challenge me, to read the Word of God, to, to model for me what it looks like to be a man of God. I don't know where I'd be today. If I didn't have leaders giving a, a, a place for my friends and I to come together so that we could actually talk about the things of the Lord together, because you know it doesn't happen in the hallways of the school. I don't know where I would be today. Youth ministry is vitally important for the future of the church, let alone our church. The church. I want to ask you to sacrificially pray. Am I able, am I willing to give a little bit of time to pour into the future generation of today's church? Are you willing to give some of your time? And if you are, I want to ask you, even if you think you might be, even if it's just a hunch that maybe I'm willing, I would love to talk to you. We're trying to figure out what the path forward is there because it's not, it's not okay to abandon kids and to fail to disciple them. Abandon is maybe too strong of a word, but let's do what we can to disciple them, even if it means sacrificially giving up our time and our energy. <laughs> and again, why? The answer is because that's what Jesus did for us. He didn't just give up his time, his energy. He gave up his life. He, though eternally happy in heaven came here 
where he had to wash his feet, change his clothes, where he had to suffer through the the torment and the, the tiredness of this world so that he could die on a cross, taking our sins, rising again, so that anyone who believes in him and the death and resurrection that he accomplished on the cross could live forever. That's the story that gives us hope and that's the story that gives us direction. We remember that story and we celebrate that story continually week after week after week throughout all the days that we gather here as a, as a church. And so today we're going to give it, we're going to do it specifically through communion because that's what we do in communion. We remember and we celebrate the person and the work of Jesus Christ. How he took our sin, bled and died on the cross, received our punishment for our sins so that we wouldn't have to remembering and celebrating that. We remember how he rose again from the grave, victorious over sin and death, breaking free from the bonds of darkness to new, eternal, everlasting life so that those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his work would be united with him in his victory, united with him in his freedom from sin, death, and darkness, united with him in his eternal life, and united with one another in the body of Christ. Because as we eat these communion elements together we celebrate this in our purity we are reminded of this and with great anticipation we look forward to the day that we will feast fully with him in his kingdom because of what he sacrificially did and so if you're a follower of christ if you've put your faith in him this this meal is for you Join us together as we remember and celebrate Jesus. I want to say this, though, and I want to say it clearly. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to ask you not to do this with us. If you've never put your faith in him, do not take this meal of celebration and remembrance with us. Rather, what I want to ask you to do is actually take this time to pray about that. Talk with the Lord today, right now, and ask yourself, Lord, do, have I surrendered to you? Will I surrender to you? Consider right now who it is in your life that you might need to talk to about what you believe about Jesus. And frankly, if you don't have anybody in your life who, doesn't know, who knows Jesus and can, can lead you to him, come talk to me. I would love to talk with you about who Jesus is and what he has done. And so now let me lead you as we prepare our hearts for communion. Take a minute to silently remember Jesus and meditate upon what he did, his sacrifice on the cross for you. Tell him of your gratitude. Meditate upon the depths of his love for you that led him to do something like that. And determine to walk in in the newness of life that he has won for you by the power of the Holy Spirit that he has put in you. Now, if you would open up the communion elements, I'll lead us through our communion liturgy.
Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, today, as we do so often, we remember your mercy. (laughs) The fact that by no merit of our own, from no work that we have done, you have determined, (laughs) you decided by your own initiative, to come and lay down your life, to send his son, your son to lay down his life on the cross for us so that we might live, Lord, wiping us clean from our sin, wiping all of those who believe in you clean so that we could be united with you in a resurrection like yours. Father, we have died to who we are, who we were. We've been ri- risen again to new life by your grace, by your mercy. And so, Father, we celebrate that today. And we pray, Lord, that your mercy wouldn't only get us saved, but it would actually permeate our lives, that it would lead us to live sacrificially as we love one another. In in, in our families, in our communities, and in our church, and in the universal church. God, may your mercy shape and characterize our life as we go forward, because that's who you remade us to be. By the power of the Holy Spirit, work that in us, Lord. We pray that and we praise you for that mercy. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Would you stand and worship with us?